special episode of the Care Experience Podcast today. We are collaborating with Rory Hearn, uh, who's also, this is going to be Reboot Republic podcast as well. And uh, we have an extra special guest. Not everybody gets to come back on this twice, but I'm really happy to have Ashley Bloom here uh, alongside us as well. Um, every time I talk to Ashley, I learn something new and something very important. And I think you can't say that about everyone. Uh, so listen, welcome. Welcome as well, Reboot Republic. It's going out on Reboot Republic stream as well. I'm absolutely delighted and privileged to be here with the... What are we? Are we... It's it's Epic Aftercare. What? You didn't even introduce yourself. Oh, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I he wants like, to be the unnamed, unknown, yeah, yeah, the, the voice. The mysterious, mysterious <laughs> presence in the background. Uh, oh. Peter Lane, advocacy officer with Epic. There were 10 years. And um, it's lovely to be out here at my old alma mater. Out here in Minute, uh, I've spent a good bit of time wandering around. I gave a lecture this morning uh, with Neve, uh, Neve Flanagan, Dr. Neve Flanagan's crew. And thanks for having us. And then I just kind of wandered around getting lost because it's changed so much. <laughs> uh, went well, back. What's, what's Epic? Empowering People in Care, uh, we are an advocacy organisation that work solely with children and young people with care experience. So we advocate on their behalf. We make sure that people are listening to their voices and making sure that they know uh, their entitlements and their rights and such and such. We do policy, we do research, and we also do participation in as well. Was it COVID when we did a, the last podcast? I think it was episode seven. I think it How was long COVID. ago was that? Yeah, it would have been... I'm trying to think back, like, what I said, so, like, we don't go over the same thing, but I'm kind of thinking... Actually, people forget many... what people said five minutes ago, <laughs> not to mind five months but ago. I'm like, many moons ago. Well, not many moons ago. Probably a year and a half. It was, half, many, it was two many. Two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. Ooh, yeah. time's going fast. Yeah. Um, but the only thing is, is, like, housing hasn't improved whatsoever. It's gotten so much worse. The situation has got worse. Yeah. The uh, situation has got worse, and that's why it's great to start this... It's usually I'm fairly laid back and phlegmatic kind of a chap, uh, but more and more when you see young people coming out of the care system, and like it's it's almost like a matter of course now that they're being referred into homeless services. It's just it's insanity, mm-hmm. uh, and it's really really pissing me off, and it's really really making me angry. It's affecting it's affecting my mental health. <laughs> People are too worried about that, but uh, you know what I mean. It is you can just see. Well, it's it. really hard actually to work with young people, and we actually so in work because I work in residential, Ooh. children's residential, so for under 18s and we. Can you explain what that is, Ashton? It's know. like um, it, there's different types of care provision. So if a young person, for whatever reasons, their family, biological family, cannot. Um, care for the young person well they may be moved into state care and state care has various provisions one would be foster care you could have relative foster care or um, non-relative foster care and then another one of those provisions is residential care so it would be like a a home essentially for young people and uh, depending on the residential unit will depend on how many young people are actually specifically like living in that specific house and we have a staff team, so we do, well, again, depending on the service, mm. but we're currently doing 24-hour shifts. So we kind of, how would you say, it's a very intimate way of working with young people because you're, like, basically in their space quite a lot. Like, you know, you're in their home, um, which, like, 
some young people like to class it as a home and then some young people do have ties to family and wouldn't necessarily see residential as a home and you always talk about the nuances of Mm. home and what it means to people and I think that's something that like really sticks with me um and recently enough we had this kid that was like I'm not going back there it's not my home kind of thing and you know kind of saying to him you don't have to see it that way you know we wouldn't force you to see it that way but like we totally understand that for some young people it will be a home and for others it won't be and there's space for everyone to feel how they want to feel about residential care um so yeah we work with young people in that space um as qualified social care workers so in order to work there we have to do the social care degree yeah now my train of thought has completely gone we were, off we were talking no 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 that was that was me i jotted in really rudely and uh forced you to explain that there because i said lots of reboot republic listeners might Won't, be aware yeah, yeah, of yeah. what exactly and i've got the podcast for the care experience exactly podcast, yeah the hat on yeah. for that thinking okay people are gonna so we're gonna blame yeah. this weird mix of combination for ruining everything what would have been an amazing podcast is now just going to be a mediocre no it's still going to be brilliant no, I, we were talking about the, the um, you were talking about the aftercare oh, and the housing crisis. In, and we do, part of our, um, in fairness, I work for a great organisation and they give a lot to their staff um, in terms of kind of support systems. So we would every month have a process group, um, which is kind of like group supervision for mm. the staff team. So we would go there and we would discuss, you know, what's going on for us professionally um maybe things that are coming up in our line of work that might be triggering us um you know transference from uh the adults to the children and and maybe back again counter transference and so it does ask like a big commitment um in terms of like emotional labor and reflection and stuff like that like we're constantly in a reflective space when we're working with young people and an interesting kind of conversation came up because one of our young people is due to, I guess, uh, transition in inverted commas from our service into aftercare. Um, now, I, luckily enough, we've got an extension for this particular young person, so they will be able to stay to finish their leave insert, which is really good. Um, but the key work and role, so in residential care, we would have what's called, uh, the young people would have a key worker. It yeah. is a designated person specifically for that young person um to essentially maybe be their advocate uh to role model for them um to do the kind of like background admin core co- um things I guess like you know mm. but also to build a significant relationship the key worker is defined as a significant relationship so in the care domain we're as staff as professionals expected to kind of take on roles with young people whereby we build a really significant relationship with them and then come 18 at the I guess the law that we have is that young people cannot stay in a residential unit um once they reach 18 because technically they're not under the child care law anymore yeah uh, the child care act 1991 they will kind of go into another realm and in law be seen as an adult like you know but all through our training um and when we're doing our process groups and we also do consultancy with a clinical psychologist to discuss kind of what's going on for the young people yeah and we're always told that 
okay, you could have a young person here who's 15, but developmentally, they're at 10 or yeah. 9. And we have to respond to, to the developmental age, not to the actual age. Yeah. But as soon as that young person turns 18, it changes. It's like, okay, we even though they're 18 on paper, developmentally, they could be at 15. And all of a sudden, we, we will have to see them as, as 18 and we'll have to move them on into aftercare, you know? Now, you've got a key worker who has been asked a lot of to turn on an emotional switch, to create an emotional connection with that kid. And then come 18, that relationship is just severed, kind of like, you know? Yeah. Um, Which I just find, like, we were talking about that in process group, that it's so hard to just then ask a, a uh, even though we're professionals we're still human as well to just ask that that emotional switch be switched off you know and then for the key worker and for staff like that are working there it's really hard because we put in so much into these young people from the time that we get them some of them were in at like 10 11 and they could be living there all the way up to 18 so you're talking like six seven years of a relationship you know and we do everything that we can in-house, in-service to bring that young person on, you know, to, um, I guess, give them a greater uh, world insight kind of thing yeah. or a better worldview and, you know, um, how to navigate their emotions and conflict resolution and what healthy relationships are like. And, you know, and then come 18, it's like all the work that we've done to get them to the point of being an adult. Like we then are not in the driving seat then. It, it's then Tusla that takes the, over to find aftercare placements. And the reality is the housing crisis, I guess, is having such a direct impact on young people leaving care. And it's kind of like, oh, that's not your role anymore, you know. Uh, little old social care worker cannot change the housing system, you know. It's kind of like too much beyond our role. Like it's too big a concept for us to be able to challenge and fix, like, you know. Um, and it can be very difficult to be a social care worker and then at that point where a young person turns 18 and they're coming back to us and saying their life is really difficult and they're really struggling and stuff, but... You know, and actually, where you're working is a really good uh, example of residential care. In in my yeah, know, like, I, go I have to say, our organisation is exemplary. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to name them. Yeah, they're no, they're brilliant. I have to say, yeah. like they do put a lot of um, like because obviously it's it's cost. Like you process groups and paying for a facilitator and paying for a clinical psychologist, like, it's big money, like, yeah. you know, but mm. the learning for us is, like, amazing, like, you yeah. know. Um, and not all residential services are quite as good as that. I, I travel around and I meet young people in the yeah. same situation where uh, they don't want to, like, in, I know in Racefield, young people are welcome to come back. You know mm. what I mean? They come yeah. back. So other places, possibly, you know, written by, by, by for profit places like that, yeah. they wouldn't be as welcome to come uh, and it wouldn't be as you but know, also it would be as a holistic and experience for the young person. Yeah, but know? the staff turnover in in it, I think it, it it mainly boils down to how long are you retaining your yeah. staff because yeah. you're not going to come back to a service mm-hmm. where the staff that used to look after you don't or they're exactly. not there anymore. And I'm going to know? looking at you guys there for the same faces for years and years. Ah, oh, some people are working there like thirty five yeah. years. And like other places where you see you see there's a new uh, new set of 
staff maybe yeah. every time you're coming out and there. it's it's the things that are coming to me when I'm listening to you is the what I was talking about at the conference and what I've been thinking about is that whole that the state is essentially acting in the in loco parentis. Yeah. That it is yeah. essentially the corporate parent. Yeah, it is. And therefore that term, corporate parent. Yeah, corporate yeah, parent. Like, yeah. I didn't use that term, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just but that's very clear. In policy, like yeah, it that's will, what it, it will means. be yeah. named as corporate yeah. parent. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think in in essence that is um the, the word corporate there isn't how we would think of corporation. It's it's a body uh, yeah. an institution rather than necessarily not a commercial organization but the point being that the role that you are playing is in a sense a parental role and similarly with the home or a guardian role that the similar with the placing as we were discussing is a home in some ways Mm. even if the young person doesn't see it as that it is that place where they are being minded which they know which is familiar, has some level of familiarity with them. And the idea is you're saying that that brain development, because that was actually, I heard the other speaker, her name has gone out of my head now. I hope she's Brona Stars. That's I it, Brona. I'm like proper Brona. like a Brona Stars Sam page now. Yeah. <laughs> I love her Brona, name. I didn't forget your name. It was just temporarily <laughs> the early onset similarities coming in. <laughs> but Brona was she's absolutely, brilliant. absolutely amazing. And her presentation about the impact of trauma on the brain and how it impacts on development. And that's exactly what, what you're talking about. But that it's even I was you know thinking about that before I had heard Brona, I was talking about that, you know, if we look at um, the wider society now, that young people are staying at home longer in part due to the housing, well, main part due to the housing crisis. But even in terms of adulthood, we know now in terms of psychology, the brain is not fully developed until you're 24. And so this idea that you're, as I said, there's nowhere else where parents turn to their children and go, oh, you turned 18 yesterday, right, you're gone, out the door. Whereas that's what the state is doing to young people who are who have been traumatised who have been traumatised yeah. already traumatized. Yeah. from a loss of a home loss of yeah. a home possibly in the our... reasons why they went into care and then most often when they end up in residential care there might be a number of foster placements broke down and then when they end up in residential care especially sometimes with a high turnover staff at the age of 18 they really are not able to function even if there was a uh, uh, functioning housing uh, yeah. system yeah. there isn't at the moment so we're, we really are failing these young people and children as a society and it's 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 something that i'm really happy to have the two of you guys sitting around the table here with me so we can kind of tease it out and see if there is any more uh solutions you know in our um consultation group we do um kind of consultation with joanna fortin she's mm. um she on news talk and stuff like that she's got a good platform like um, she was on this on the reboot public podcast before yeah. around parenting and yeah uh, yeah, yeah very she does good. a lot like yeah. um oh like terror play yeah, and, and yeah, 15 yeah, minute yeah. parenting and, and stuff like and that yeah. and, but she yeah. brought something to the consultation group because the idea that this particular young person didn't want to refer to uh, the residential unit as home um but even trying to tease out like does this young person even have a concept of what home even means? Because, mm. you know, home maybe is a very unsettling concept for some people, like, you know, that have come from quite traumatic um, backgrounds. You maybe have parents with addiction or 
you know, um, like domestic violence where home wasn't necessarily the safest of places, like, you know. But she recommended this book and it like just went, blew my mind. It was the the concept of the unhoused mind. Mm. And I think about like that from maybe a psychoanalysis or a psychodynamic um, kind of space where you're thinking, okay, we're working with young people that are in the care system where we're going to house in inverted commas or home them for a specific amount of years and you know young people have various um experiences of the care system some experiences are are settled Mm. some is you're in foster care and you're there indefinitely um and you know some really good foster parents will continue to foster even beyond 18 and, and still provide for that home whereas like you know it just depends on on the foster family and and their i guess uh way of of fostering and stuff like you know whereas um some young people would have to move out of the home at 18 and the same in residential care we're kind of bound by legislation to move that young person out at 18 but like what happens from there because where's home then do you know um like this home that you've had for this amount of years that we've provided for is just completely gone you know and what what does that do to a person's mind? Like, so in a space, if you talk about the unhoused mind, yeah. when you say home, an image comes to your mind of something yeah. or you talk about it. Whereas when that person has left care and they say that or think that, there is literally nothing there. But even, even before 18... When you're like, okay, a residential is your home. But even even then, at, a, at an early age, like 15, 16, these young people know that home is not going to be there when I turn 18. Mm. So imagine what that must be like in terms of settlement, a sense of belonging, a sense of self-worth, mm-hmm. a sense of connection. Um, all of those things that are so important to help us develop in life is just like not really afforded to these young people do you know what I mean absolutely and, and I talk about that in um my research and in the book um on the ontological insecurity concept which is this deep sense of psychological stability and security that you that a home gives you and not a home in the sense of just the family or whatever but actually the physical building the physical the place mortar, the yeah. bricks and mortar of having a space that is yours that you know you can go back to it gives you something deep inside yourself a sense of security so you're absolutely right and then they know as you say from 15 16 that i'm out of here and at that point you know where is my ontological security coming from and this is the problem it's mm. You know, there's no base. There is no, and and as you, you know, the cases that were we talked about and um, you covered. You know, you've in people might get housed for a temporary time or even terms of aftercare, bringing it up to twenty three, and then you know they might get housing for a short period of time. Something happens. The landlord sells up. Where do they go to? They have no family. Um, no safety fall, net. No safety no net. Safety net. Yeah. You know, and we talk actually. It's, and um, it's always precarious in yeah. nature, right? Because of course, that's your yeah. Uh, like, um, I guess right. If if a young person goes into uh the care system and they've got a foster parent, and maybe a foster parent will foster for a specific amount of time. It could be short term fostering, could be long term fostering. But then something might happen within that family. There could be a 
I don't know, a, a grieving, like a death, some yeah, grief, yeah. loss, um, whatever. And maybe that foster family can't cater for a young person anymore. Yeah. And that young person then goes to another foster family. Um, and then maybe a residential. And then maybe a residential could be short term until there's a longer term bed secured. And then aftercare. Right, let's, let's talk about what happens after 18. So I've already spoken about under 18 provision yeah. of the care system. We've got foster care, non-relative, residential, mm. and various other alternative uh, placements. After we tur- a young person turns 18, you have a situation then where by the provision, um, you could get an aftercare unit, which would be similar to residential, but it would be more less hands-on. So the staff working mm. in the residential or in the aftercare unit wouldn't necessarily be doing things like calling the young person in the morning they wouldn't be cooking for them the young person would be expected to have more independent uh, living skills to be able to kind of sustain themselves prepping them for living on their own Um, an aftercare unit is very hard to come by because there's just not a lot of beds in aftercare Mm. provision even though Tusla can actually future project how many young kids are going to be leaving at 18 yes of course because they know how many people are in the system and what age they're but this is where it's a small amount this is where the um the the housing crisis has a direct impact because you're talking about residential units aftercare units what are they there's they're homes like they are literally mm. a block that you need to go and buy but unfortunately at the moment they're very very expensive like you yeah. know so it means that the capacity to develop and and increase these beds is greatly reduced because of the cost of the market like direct correlation there you go another thing now that's happening so that's one provision is the aftercare unit another provision could be for example, um, student accommodation. Yeah. A lot of young people are ending up going from care into student accommodation. Yeah. And that has difficulties in and of itself. Like, you know, you're talking about um, a very... Normally, student accommodations are term-bound. Yeah. So, from September yeah. to June. Uh, sometimes students are, that are living in student accommodation have the luxury of going back to a family home, mm. bringing their washing, all of that kind of stuff. So it is a bedroom, small little bedroom, self-contained, maybe with like a toilet and then like kind of communal facilities of um, like a living space and a kitchen yeah. space, like, you know. And you're talking about a young person kind of going to a student accommodation, not during term year, but to live there indefinitely, but yet not having like a lot of space. And yeah. some student accommodations, they can't bring friends back or, you know, um, wouldn't be able to have somebody stay over. And the and other thing, actually, they, they need to be a student. Like, we're and they also back, need to be a student. You know, we're yeah. looking back to when they're over, doing their own rating, <laughs> oftentimes, they, after being through all that drama, after not knowing where they're going to be living, all the stress of that, they also have to worry about uh, sitting their leaving cert yeah. and trying to get into college to avail of the aftercare allowance which uh, they won't get unless they're in some education. So they have all that going on. All that So on top of, of the pressure and stress that any regular student has with the leave insert, they have an added pressure. It's not just whether you get into college, it's whether you have a home or not. Exactly. That's just... And Tusla, there's, there's been cases where Tusla have actually held off offering, uh, like sorting out aftercare 
until the CAO results come out. Oh my God. Do you know, because they're like, oh, but maybe you won't get a college placement. So we're just going to wait. We're just going to wait and see. And, that is you know, just so you're horrific. holding on to the last minute to know whether or not you've secured yourself in, in a So the situation sense. is that if you're over, you turn 18, and if you don't go into education or training, you yeah. are, are not given the aftercare allowance. The aftercare allowance. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So you have nothing. Yeah, you'll get Pretty a higher level much. of social welfare, but then you're relying on HAP. And, and this is the big yeah. issue then. This so if the you don't qualify now. for education, you are then reliant on the housing assistance payment, yeah. which of course then is the problem because what landlord in this market is going is to take, going to an take 18 on year old. an 18-year-old? Yeah. Any 18-year-old, never mind an yes. 18-year-old just after coming out of the care yeah. system that may have developmental issues. And well, some landlords might, but the, we know from my research is that But like, what does that even look are, like? Come 18, you, yeah. take, you get half, you go into a house share probably because there's yes. no uh, individual uh, one beds out yes. there, very difficult to get. Well, they're and like two grand uh, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, literally. And then you've got this young person who's coming from care that is like very much still finding their place in the world, going into a house share, probably with people that are a good few years older than them. And, and possibly sharing, even, like, not in a house share, sharing a room. Could be sharing a room. But like, what does that look like in terms of, um, you know, having, still navigating like your own trauma and like, you know, that kind of, like the difficulties that might come up in those house share relationships because mm. you could have a housemate then that's kind of like, um, oh, why is this person in their room a lot? Or yeah. like, why, are, like it could bring up so much within the house share relationship that um could actually end up re-triggering, re-traumatizing or actually a young person could really internalize um difficulties, you know, um, within those housemate relationships like um and that's that's extremely difficult because when you look at you know the 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 housing situation and you know it has become so like directly impacted it's not just that they're reliant on HAP it's that you know in the past even if they got a job and they could pay some rent they could get rent somewhere themselves yeah. whereas now the last 3 or 4 years that's just gone so it's so acute it must be and we know like the research is there you know Paula Mayock and others have done it and you know spoken with those who are leaving care and they're you know they've documented their stories their experience of you know they are going into hidden homelessness couch surfing um oftentimes going back to the parents and oftentimes the reasons why they went into care haven't gone away yeah so they've nowhere else to go to they're going back into situations where very very unhealthy for them to say the least uh, that can happen as well. We're seeing a lot of them are sitting, you know, a huge amount of couch surfing. Um, not sometimes you see young young people moving in with their partner, and automatically then if there's a power differential there, uh, so they'd be very vulnerable. If there's a big argument, they're homeless. You know, yeah. What I mean? So it's yeah. not a, a healthy relationship at yeah. that stage. Uh, that's something we see uh, a good bit as well. Um. Yeah, and and it's because we actually just had um, Kellyanne, who was a Focus Ireland ambassador, who um, had um, been in care as well, and she spoke about that, and in terms of her vulnerability, then as you know, in terms of risk, you know, in relationships, you know, how do you leave, you know, even abusive relationships because it's you're so vulnerable and you don't have anywhere to go fall back on. 
Um, Because often then friendships are more difficult as well. That, you know, you're talking about people who are potentially, you know, some of the most isolated in society. And we are saying to them, sorry, lads and lassies, job done. You've turned 18. Good luck to you. And with all your trauma too. Yeah. And good luck in navigating the worst housing crisis this country has ever seen and trying to survive and add that anxiety on top of all the anxiety and we know there are young people if i'm right in the research going from care into homelessness yeah. into emergency accommodation which is a worse place in terms of traumatizing and it just must be it's and of course as he say utterly preventable we know where they are yeah, yeah. we know when many. they'll turn 18 yeah. Yeah. and when they'll turn 23 like, this is completely when, avoidable. When I started, like you could look a young person in the face and go, "Look, if you work your, if you work really hard, get into college, you'll get into, you know, you'll get accommodation. You get, you can't, you can't say that anymore. You can't actually say that uh, you work really hard, you're gonna make it. You know, which is incredibly sad thing to say. You know, uh, that's not that's all. That's just yeah, yeah. And I guess it's like. I don't think we realise the ingrainedness of having a care experience and like it's it's a it's a lifelong thing mm. a person is going to take with them. Do you know what I mean? To um it will come out in relationships, it will come out in friendships, it will come out in housing, it's gonna come out in every aspect of that person's life. Having a family, having a child and looking at that child and thinking, I was once that child mm. who didn't have their needs catered for what what's that going to bring up for that individual like do you know um in terms of parenting and like navigating all of that like it's it's just such an ingrained thing that like we don't maybe give it enough weight um the the lifelongness of having a care experience um and yeah i think like Again, my train of thought. I was onto something there. No, no, no. That's 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 you, you, you know spoke that to is me before about that about yeah. every time you moved home, you felt it was like uh, a different placement. Yeah. You know I mean? So I haven't given a disclaimer. I'm. Yeah. I have a lived experience, uh, a care experience, and yeah, like at eighteen, I was one of the eighteen-year-olds heading into private rented. But I think I'm not going to say back in the day because it wasn't actually that long ago. Um, but what we're talking. 12 years I think um but yeah it was there was way rents more of, properties rents have almost rents. doubled so yeah, when I moved out it was like it was 400 euro I think for a, a pretty big double bedroom you know and yeah. um, now in saying that it as much as it was cheaper and places were a little bit easier to find it was still very precarious like you know um it seemed to be every year um like there was an eviction, we experienced an eviction, yeah. um, moved out, found a different property, maybe landlord went into liquidation, maybe they just wanted to sell the property, maybe they uh, said a family member was moving in, whatever yeah. the excuses were. And like, obviously, as an 18 year old that is trying to navigate college and the newness of independent living and, you know, being in private rented and having to pay bills and, you know, having to navigate friendships and uh loss and grief and identity and mm. all of these things like you know um to have a experience of every year nearly every year moving but like not really understanding your rights in private rented you know like yeah. the landlord's kind of like oh maybe we're not renewing the contract 
I did not have a clue about the Landlord Tenancy Act, nothing like that. So I'd be just like, oh, okay, no problem. See you later and pack up and go. But I think I was probably 24, 25 and had maybe moved a number of times. And I remember saying, I don't know where I even said it, but like it clicked with me what um, was going on. One of the days I was like, oh yeah, no, um, getting evicted. Like, and then I said, placement breakdown. So when you're in the care system, if um, like a placement ends, it, it could be referred to as a placement breakdown, you yeah. know? And I had a lot of experiences um, in the care system, a lot of placements, you know? And when I was in private rented then, even though I wasn't in the care system anymore, I was referring to evictions as a placement breakdown. And that was actually re-traumatizing me every time I had to move because it was reminding me of maybe moving from one foster family to a different place or moving from a residential to a different place. Even though the two realms weren't necessarily um, related in any way, um, I was seeing an eviction as a placement breakdown and actually internalizing that. Do you know, this is my fault. Um, And then when I... The loss of home again. Yeah, when I copped what was going on, I was like, oh, that's a bit, that's quite deep. Now I'm going to need to look at that a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, at 30 years of age, still in private rented and... I will have no ability to save for a mortgage or anything like that. My rent at the moment is 940 and I would still consider myself quite lucky. Um, as in that's quite cheap for Dublin rents, let's just say, you know. So I think I taught it up, maybe it was three, four months ago, how much rent I've spent since 18 years of age. And it works out at something like 120,000 euro on yeah. rent, you know, yeah. that's like three mortgages. Yeah. And so you're just kind of stuck in this uh, cycle of paying rent and constantly having to grapple with the, should I secure myself in the physical sense or should I secure myself in the emotional sense as in paying for counseling and stuff like that, yeah, you know, it's yeah. constantly a grapple. Yeah. Um, should I maybe stop going to counseling and decide to save a little bit to try and get a mortgage or, you know, it's, it's this grapple that maybe others don't have to deal with, you know? Now, recently enough, um, before I found the property that I'm in now, um, when the landlord or the letting agent had gotten in contact to say, oh, you know, uh, the lease is up the lease wasn't up I know my rights now so I put it back to them um they were like oh you know the lease is uh, expired I'm like excuse me par for tenancy dun 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 you know yeah. and dished it out and they uh but what happened was even though they kind of rolled back on saying we were getting evicted even the very mention of a potential eviction created so much feeling of insecurity yeah. that I was rattled I was like I can't stay here now yeah. because they could go to move at any point like you know they they could say a family member is moving in and I wouldn't really have a leg to stand on here so I start looking and um how was that insecurity because that's kind of what I was taught about earlier that ontological insecurity what did that feel like oh like it just your home isn't your home anymore because it's dictated to by another person. And I actually wrote a letter to the Department of Children and the Taoiseach and I, it was quite an emotionally flooded letter, let's just say, because yeah. I was in the height of it. like, And I was like, like, I just belted out this letter. And in the letter, I said, it's just dawned on me that my housing security has always been at the mercy of another person. It was at the mercy of a foster mother or foster parents who didn't want to care for you anymore. Or it's at the mercy of a landlord who 
basically tells you to get out kind yeah. of thing do you know yeah. and I'm like at 30 years of age I really would have thought this kind of precarious insecure way of living would have really settled by now you know now the department of children got back to me and said that they were doing a longitudinal study um it's commissioned now by the department of children and it will look at the long term in inverted commas it's probably more an interim medium term piece of research uh because it's up to 10 years from the point of when a young person leaves care at 18 mm. up until say 28 they're going to be looking at their trajectory in aftercare and where young people are ending up um over the course of 10 years you know and that what I find very interesting about the commissioning of this research is that it was a recommendation of the Ryan report way back when for this to be done. Mm. And I think that the state just sat on its hands in that regard. So it's only getting started now. And the Department of Children rang me after the letter to kind of say, like, um, first, kind of, how are you? Like, and, you know, we're really taken aback by your letter. It's a very strong letter. And I'm like, well, they're my experiences. I can't dilute them yes they read quite heavy on paper but that is the lived experience you know and I'm not going to sugarcoat it either so that the person at the end of the uh, letter feels okay I guess you know and also don't ring me and ask me am I okay that's quite disempowering you know um I just found it a very disempowering start to the phone call like you know Stop, let's stop asking people are they okay and let's actually say what we're going to do yeah. to help these yeah. young people do you know yeah. um because what we're doing is we're pathology we're creating individual pathology like we're saying oh it's an individual's fault that, that their mental health is in the gutter yeah. when actually uh you know it's part and parcel of policy of having like no security and and the effects long-term effects on a person's mental health and well-being like do you know we hear an awful lot about the you know the mental health epidemic at the moment like i think if you sort out the housing epi- mm-hmm. epidemic the mental health will kind of look out after itself well you look at maslow's extent. hierarchy of needs like yeah. it's security is like on the bottom it's like the foundation of anything yeah. like yeah. you know and no that, absolutely like it's it's it definitely would enable people again provide them a base from within which they could you know address the issues in their life and you know there's no doubt that the housing crisis is causing a major major mental health you know impacts as well anxiety insecurity what you talk about there and you know even when you're talking about like you're working as well and you're studying and you know that insecurity how that must impact on all that and trying to hold you know that job down as you say you know particularly challenging emotionally um draining you know and obviously uplifting as well but you know requiring as you said a huge emotional energy um alongside studying as well like these things that anxiety that is so um you know shouldn't be there around housing you know seeps into all aspects of your life Mm, yeah definitely but i even think like we know housing is the foundation of development or security is the foundation of development, the feeling of security. And that's why we have policies and that's why we have initiatives like Housing First. Um, So Housing First is, I guess, this like policy initiative. It's to house kind of those who've been long-term homeless Mm. and it's to actually give them a house kind Mm. of thing. Like, you know, 
and then there's support services put in around them yeah and it's kind of like okay so is it not a bit counterintuitive then to have a young person go from care into homelessness and only then will the housing first model kind of kick in like you know it's kind of like i think we've missed a gap we need to (laughs) we need to go back you know we could we could go from care to home we could go from care to being housed like you know like there's there's a link you know you're being referred into peter mcferry's and focus earnings but but doing great work and not slagging off them up but why why not clue it why not sophia why why would they have been referred to homeless uh, organizations instead of housing bodies you know what I mean and it seems to be concrete in that link between uh, well, I, would, would I would say that young people may too be vulnerable in like young people leaving care might also be vulnerable in approved housing bodies it's a different setup I think it's still treated like um a residential ten- it's under the residential tenancies act I don't think they would have the same amount of security in a public Council House. Okay. Well, there's different debate. Yeah, there's different discussion about that. Essentially, you do have a lifetime tenancy in a housing association tenancy. It's not the same insecurity okay. as the private rental. The private rental tenancies act applies, and that's and I need to clarify that and go back yeah. and look at that. <laughs> yeah. But my understanding is it is effectively a tenancy for life. That unlike the private rental sector yeah, in a housing yeah. association tenancy, um, and again, if that you know. Yeah, anyway, need to look at that. But the point that I think is that I was going to say is that we don't measure those leaving care or who are coming out when it is the figures like the state knows them. Yeah. Like the HSC. With boxes of files on each one of these. Well, not even boxes. They're on computers. You know, the numbers are there. Like we could know exactly and count. And this is part of the wider argument of us not measuring those at housing risk and homelessness and insecure housing properly. Um, like this would be such a very easy preventative response. We know when people are going to leave care. We know who they are. You know, you track them with housing support and you do housing first, as you say, Ashley. Yeah. From the straight moment from care. Yeah. straight from care. <laughs> yeah. Not when you've gone into homelessness and then yeah. you know, like re-traumatizing and adding trauma on to compounding trauma. Um it just seems, and as you said, the numbers aren't huge. They're like the, these are like what is it you're saying in terms of numbers in care? Five thousand eight hundred or five thousand yeah. nine hundred kids in care at the moment, children in care. So we're looking around about five hundred. About five hundred turn eighteen, turn eighteen each year, yeah. and yeah. So it's like again, we know years in advance. We know next year the five hundred people yeah. where they're going to leave from. Yeah. You know, and it's and we also know that these are not going to like without the. Without the intervention of Tusla or the state body or a county council, uh, they're not going to be able to get housed. No, they're, but also know. not all 500 of those are going to need housing. Some of yeah, them are going to be absolutely. in situations of foster care. Some of them are going to be able to go into student accommodation. So, But again, we don't know yeah. and we should know mm-hmm. and we should be responding to that. I think like um, obviously we've got our social housing system yeah and we have what's like the housing application the social housing application yeah i've always kind of said like so in with social housing there's various bands of priority before there was a band of priority for homelessness but i think they've since gotten rid of that i stand corrected if that is not the case but i think it is i think there might be i think it was removed and it could be back in some sort and uh, okay yeah and i'm thinking like why yet don't we have a band specifically for care experienced people you know 
And if we do have a specific band for them, well, then I think the moment that they come into care, they should be placed on the social housing prior to 18. You know, if you're in care at age 10, 11 or five, whatever it is, that you can put that young person on the social housing list so that by the time they turn 18, they've gone through the, the waiting process that hopefully there will be. We know that there is going to be a stock of housing somewhere for them like you know I know you can go in but that would be a really intelligent preventative measure (laughs) yeah why would you do that (laughs) it's much more logical to try and respond in a crisis response when they're homeless is it not yeah it's frustrating I know we can like so one of the things we do we're trying to advocate that they go in under exceptional social uh, grounds uh, that mm. in, the, in the county council with the, and sometimes we have a bit of luck sometimes we don't uh, but even getting processing the the application they're not allowed uh, put it in until they're 18 but sometimes we can get a bit of wiggle room we can get it in 12 weeks before their 18th birthday so they're not waiting for the 3 months for the actual process but the thing is once a young person I've always said this once a young person turns 18 the space that they're going to go into like the chaos of leaving mm. uh what was your home to go into venturing into the unknown let's just say to actually get a young person to sit down and do a housing application post 18 can actually be really difficult like we need to actually be able as professionals to sit down with them and do the housing application in service in house while we have them because once they're gone some young people are like oh f this i'm i'm not linking in with professionals i've had professionals all my life like they're only there because they get paid blah 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 F that I'm out here like yeah. you know and <laughs> sometimes then it can be really difficult to actually get yeah. and you're like you really need and, to do this and, and like. there's two things as well that's try you know that I talked about at the, the conference that the change in housing policy as well to rely and describe housing assistance payment housing in the private social housing in the private rental sector as social housing and as the main form of social housing has disadvantaged those vulnerable groups like care leavers even more. Because in the past, when there was more council housing, someone was allocated a council housing. Now it's your HAP in the private rental sector, basically, you know, you know, try and compete with professionals earning a hundred grand a year. Like it's just, it's, it's wrong. And the other thing is to me, it comes back to the need for a right to housing, you know, because currently care leavers don't have those rights and they should have. Mm-hmm. a right to a home, particularly in terms of that absence of, you know, that housing background potential support that's there. Yeah, 100%. Like you were looking Do you think that would be significant, Ashling, in terms of the right to housing and putting it in the constitution? Because you're yeah. actually now a legal scholar. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I actually had to do an essay on this and got a first. I know you essay. did. Congratulations. <laughs> um, but yeah, because I, I was reading some counter arguments from other legal scholars um, as to why they feel like a right to housing in the constitution is a waste of time. Mm. I think it will really uh, depend on how it's worded. I think, you know, there should be like some kind of committee form to make sure that it will have the biggest impact. Yeah. Um, I know there's going to be a lot of debates, I'd say, happening around the grapple between a right to housing and the right to private property kind of thing. And it'd be really interesting to see that teased out a lot more. Um, but I do think uh, it would be exceptionally symbolic for a right to housing to be enshrined in the Constitution. I think we're like one of the last countries in Europe anyway to... Um, like have that have that article actually recognized you know um but also on a practical 
uh, point, what would it look like to have a right to housing in the constitution? Would it mean that individuals can now go and challenge? Would it mean like a, an organisation like PILA, which is the Public Interest Litigation Agency? Would young people in care as a collective be able to take a collective case that their right to housing has not been recognised by the state? Um, it, that whole realm, I think, is really interesting and it would be like really interesting to see what comes from it. But I think how it would be worded would be exceptionally important to make sure it has the biggest impact, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's a one of a like watch this space because yeah. I think we, we are moving there. And I do think um, if we did have a referendum on it, I do think it would pass. I hope yeah. it would pass. No, I, I think I think there would be a serious um, campaign. There will be a serious campaign. I'm very hopeful that we're going to get a referendum on it. I am concerned that the wording will be a weak wording mm-hmm. that won't be significant yeah. and therefore it's pointless doing that. Um, I think Ireland has a great way of wording legislation in a very weak way. Yeah. <laughs> aftercare um, in the legislation um so on policy, it states that uh, aftercare provision like is up until 23 and they put a kind of like age limit on it or whatever. Um, but actually the legislation, interestingly enough, uh, states a young person may, and may it being the key word, not yeah. that they definitely will, yeah, not but shall, that they may, they, they may yeah. get an aftercare, uh, get aftercare provision. Now, the legislation states up until the continuation of the course. Um, so obviously the legislation binds it to education as well. Um, but interestingly, the legislation doesn't put an age limit on it. And I think all young people should know that. Um, Tusla may try to cut a young person off that's in education at 23. But if your education course continues on and you're 24 or 25, by legislation technically it's governed by the continuation of the educational course um and in, and in, fairness, <laughs> in fairness they can show a bit of uh they can they can have there can be a bit of wiggle room and they can uh, we have we have had cases where we've had young people go beyond that you yeah. know, the horrible phrase of aging out of aftercare yeah uh and still get there but you st- still have to kind of fight for them yeah you know and like the the, the cast properties there as well there's a capital acquisition scheme which is up and running, but just it hasn't been fit for purpose. Again, the capital assistance scheme, it's like aftercare units or residential units, you need stock. We've no yeah, stock of no housing stock. left, exactly. do you know what I mean? Yeah. So in terms of, so the capital assistance scheme is essentially a budget that's given out through the uh, county councils and city councils, and they will give a budget directly to approved housing bodies. Um, and the approved housing bodies will buy up stock with that money, that funding that they're getting. And CAS is kind of reserved for vulnerable populations. It could be the elderly, it could be care leavers, it could be travellers. Um, and essentially it means that a, a young person would get housed without having to go through the the social the housing, housing yeah, the list, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. um, so it's a more direct, so specific stock provided directly for. Yeah, those. it's a great scheme, yeah. a great yeah. initiative, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, the 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 buy up of properties is is very limited because of of the market and, and the cost of units. Like you know, <laughs> and then you go like it would be an ideal scheme for vacant and derelict properties. One hundred percent. And again, <laughs> comes back to you know the lack of any 
taxes that you know forced those vacant and derelict property brought into being and of course you know they are expensive as well sit on their hands when it comes to uh derelict and vacant properties like they're just not willing to put in the time and effort that it takes to go and compulsory purchase those properties you know but but by will we, we could be doing that. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? We should be. And they should be pressured into doing it. Yeah. You know, and that is absolutely required. I think it would be great to see like a compulsory purchase, uh, like uh, be streamlined or make it the process a little bit easier. Like, yeah. you know, because I do think it can take a long time go, going through the courts. Like, yeah. Um, There's also compulsory uh, sales orders as well, which are something we should be developing. Oh. Which is a new, um, it's been done internationally in other European countries, but it's something because exactly that the cpo process can be very very onerous um and again that's back to the right to private property in the constitution and the lack of that you know even though there is the common good and social justice as balancing and so therefore the councils in reality could be more interventionist and we know for example loud county council is more than other areas uh, other councils but even still um you know there are other things that could be done you know like the tax could be much higher the vacant property tax the derelict you know, registry isn't even filled out by local authorities some yeah. are implemented. Um, but the other thing I wanted to, and, and we're probably in terms of unfortunately going to have to come to a close at some point, but we, <laughs> could, we could keep chatting. Yeah. Um, the thing of empowering what Epic is about is empowering um, voices and, you know, of, you know, people who have care experience and obviously Ashling is, you know, in terms of, you know, you being a voice and what does that mean and how does that, why is that important? Well, I'm always very conscious because like I know Epic have the Youth Council, which is a council of young people who come together to advocate for improvements to the care system and yeah. to aftercare. What age is the Youth Council? Uh, they've gone up to 26. Uh, yeah, but I'm, also, I'm always conscious that like, you know, I'm 30 now. Mm-hmm. I, like, you know, I do. I have done a lot of speaking, um, but I do feel like it's really important for younger generations to really become empowered and also start speaking about improvements that needs to be made. So I'm very conscious of not speaking for the whole yeah. uh, care population, you know, yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a professional experience and a lived experience that I can speak from. Um, we need to be listening to those with lived experience um, in a way that is not tokenistic, but mm. in a way that... Um, I guess it creates change. Um, you know, we do have a lot of spaces where young people who've left care um are asked of their experiences and their story and it's kind of publicized maybe in a sensationalized way. Mm-hmm. And I just think like that is not ethical to do that, you know. Um we do need to mind people with a lived experience and making sure that their vulnerability isn't used for other people's gain. Um, so in that sense, I think yes to promoting voices, but no to it being done in a tokenistic kind of way, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's something that, uh, you know, they're not our stories, they're the young people's stories. And if we're going to, if Epic are going to be using other young people's stories, we have to be as most respectful Mm. Uh, as but well how draining is it to ask for a person's story over and over again and then do sweet fa with it yeah. do you know what i mean yeah. that's not fair to do that to people no. yeah i it's think exploitative. yeah yeah focus ireland have developed a lived ambassador program where they are working with formerly homeless uh, people who are formerly homeless 
on a kind of more longer term basis to be voices mm. on homelessness and they give them support as well, quite close support. And I think that's a model that in terms of when you talk about empowerment and, you know, the research and work that I've done around this, you know, it points to number one, it's absolutely essential that not just even from a crude um, service delivery and service design perspective, if you want to have effective social services, they need to have the people affected directly, centrally, to, in on terms the boards, of on the boards, like you policy know, design, policy implementation, you know, assessment, all that they need to be there because people who are delivering the services, yeah, you have some understanding, but then you know, senior policy people haven't a bull's notion in many cases, in most cases, of what it is and why services might or might not be working. Like I always remember the example of um, you know, the the homeless families that we did some um participative action research empowering work for and how when they we brought them to meet the council um the city council and you know some of the officials just going like oh my god is that the experience in emergency accommodation and they're like yes this is our experience you know this say, is like, what we yeah. you know and, and that is really important um that those lived experiences are out there and i think even more important that they're in the public sphere that they're in the media they're in the you know and, and that and that requires support and it requires and and i think that's where thing can actually uh, people feel empowered from that when their voice is out there it's not just like I'm meeting a policymaker and giving my story and it's and not it just needs, it takes work it takes work it does from, take work from and organizations resources. and takes Absolutely, resources yeah. and time and support and as you, you know you talk yeah. about actually all the you know vulnerabilities that are there and you know have to be supported but that's genuine empowerment you know yeah. when you are supporting people to be leaders in their area in bringing about change and but it also kind of dilutes the isolation of experience and struggles mm. and feeling like it's there's something intrinsically wrong with you or something that you've done wrong yeah. in life you yeah. know and yeah. it's kind of like well actually I'm having this experience I'm struggling and I'm after hearing this person talk about it and oh my god connecting the dots like you know yeah. being homeless or uh, struggling for housing it's it's a systemic issue now yeah. that's affecting hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. like you know um so even the very fundamental of just realizing like you're not alone in that mm-hmm. like can be very grounding like mo- very most, very grounding the most satisfying thing I've, I've done professionally is bringing young people together so they can discuss their uh discuss what's going on with them and actually bring them with you. and then well, I was able to bring them over to different countries as well so they're meeting other young people, uh, even online to Australia, New Zealand. So other other young people, all the different jurisdictions, different set of legislation. But when you're actually bringing them together, they all have very, very similar experience. And part of it is the stigma being in care. And part of it is the lack of stability when they're, when they're leaving. So it's it's not just in no, Ireland, it's across the board. No, it is. It's, but it's interesting. I can think You can think of it from a number of lenses. Like you can... Think of it even as like the farmers and their lobby group, right? Yeah. They don't exist, you know, they don't all exist in their own little sil- silos and lots of farmers have silos. Um, the farmers will get that joke. Um, yeah, the, good, uh, yeah. <laughs> where they put their oh silage and things like that. <laughs> I like it. I, like it. <laughs> I knew you'd appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. But, um, you know, they, they form together in a group and that's what gives them their power, their voice yeah. as farmers. Yeah. You and you go, you go trade unions, you know, what is how what is their strength when they're in a particular area of work? They get together, the nurses have their union, they speak up, they speak on behalf with and 
Um, it's, you know, I think any social group and particularly vulnerable social groups need to have their collective power and their collective voice. And they have a right to be organized and a right to be brought together to have their input into and influence and exert a power as well. You know, it's something we're not good at. And like there's, if you think about it, there's the care leavers themselves. There's the army of foster carers, army of social workers, social care workers all their families, all the academics, there's a lot of us. You yeah, know, if we actually yeah. could get our act together and speak as, with one voice, because we all know what's going on. Yeah. It's just about getting it out there. And it's getting, and it's good to, being able to do podcasts like this yeah. is a lot better, because every time you get it up on TV or radio, you've only looked at the same. Yeah, absolutely. So, and usually it, they're speaking about care leavers. And, 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 and maybe I've done it myself, uh, you know, disparagingly or disempoweringly. Uh, like they're, that they're prone to have homelessness and stuff like that but they're not these are children yeah. children who've been traumatized yeah. and with their being yeah. the same what children what does that even system. mean you're prone to homelessness like yeah, 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 yeah. 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 but like we, we, you have a tendency like towards it you know you have a tendency like to know yeah yeah like, I know yeah proper, yeah I just like, like you know every day when I get the hunger on me I just feel like going out and been homeless yeah. what yeah. like you know but it's that ridiculous like, like so, you know like the narratives like sometimes that are out there are just like what like when you break it down you're yeah. like what are you even talking about yeah. like yeah. you know yeah um, no yeah absolutely no the podcasts i think are really really important for that in terms of giving the time to talk through this stuff and you know and i've learned lots today and it is you know i know our listeners will have learned lots as well and it's great to great to have this conversation and let's keep it going yes 100 percent. thank you so much yeah thank you rory thank you Ashley. thank as, you as guys uh, uh, a great pleasure uh chatting to you and uh, yeah lovely mind yourselves out there absolutely yeah and uh, Reboot Republic listeners we will um, talk to you all very very soon thanks bye bye <laughs>